0: We're going to have an ACRAC lightning round. This is, I hope, going to be a lot of fun. It came from a suggestion by a medical student in Brazil named Andre Salai. So thanks, Andre. Andre was reading surgical recall for his surgical rotation, though he has decided to go into anesthesia. And he uh, thought, gee, it'd be nice to have some just bullet point kind of questions and answers. And he suggested doing it, and he sent me actually a bunch of really great ones. So we're going to do this lightning round today. You'll see how it goes. And I'm going to invite listeners, if you like this idea and you have some similar factoids to these, send them in. And when I accumulate enough, we'll do another one of these lightning rounds. I think this will be really good for just kind of some pure, quick, board-studying type stuff. Now, I do want to say up front, this is not going to be exhaustive. So this is going to be kind of like if you had a multiple-choice question and the What they wanted from you was what's the best possible answer, not every little detail. This is not going to be, you know, uh, every piece of research supports this exact answer. It's just going to be if you saw this on a multiple choice question, what's the probably the best right answer? So we're just going to kind of bang them out like that. And hopefully that will be useful. Again, let us know if you like this and send in some. uh, And as I said, we'll do another one from time to time if you like them. All right. Let's jump right in. This is lightning round number one. All right. What are four possible classes uh, in the Malampati classification? All right. There are four classes. Class one, you see everything. You see the soft palate, the entire uvula, the fosses, and the pillars, the tonsillar pillars. In class two, you see a little less. So you see soft palate, you see the majority of of the uvula, but not the entire thing, and the fosses. And then class three, you really see either just soft palate or you may see soft palate and just the base of the uvula, but certainly not the majority of the uvula. And class four, you see only the hard palate. All right, how about the Cormac-Lahane grades? So there is grade one, which is a full view of the glottis. Now, interestingly, this changed from its original description by Cormac and Lehane in 1984 to be updated slightly in 19. 98, and that includes 2a and 2b. Didn't used to have 2a, 2b, now there is a 2a and 2b. So we said one was a full view of the glottis, 2a is a partial view of the glottis, 2b is only the very posterior extremity of the glottis or only the arytenoid cartilages. And I usually think of this as only the arytenoids. So if you see the arytenoids but nothing else, that's 2b. If you can only see the epiglottis, that's a grade three view. And if you see nothing, except tissue, but you you don't see glottis or epiglottis. That is a grade four. All right, next. What factors are most influential on the speed of induction with a volatile anesthetic induction, an inhaled induction? So the most significant, lower solubility. The more insoluble, the faster the induction. Higher delivered concentration of anesthetic, obviously. The more you deliver uh, in terms of your concentration, the faster the onset. Higher minute ventilation will increase the speed of onset. And interestingly, and I always found this very tricky, lower cardiac output. Lower cardiac output will increase the rate of induction, make it faster. All right. Which gas has the highest vapor pressure? Nitrous oxide. Far and away, far and away, nitrous oxide in the tens of thousands. What happens if you take a variable bypass vaporizer to altitude? So in terms of the output, if you take a vaporizer that was calibrated at sea level, take it up to altitude and try to use it, it will more or less deliver the same concentration that you want. So in other words, if you dial in 2% isoflurane, let's say, for example, you dial in 2%, you will get double the amount of molecules coming out of solution because the pressure is lower, but you will get 2% of a lower atmospheric pressure. So let's say you have double the molecules coming out of solution. So you would think you would overdose, but you're delivering 2% of a lower pressure, 2% of a lower atmospheric pressure. So it balances out and you end up with about the same dose. However, what if you take a desflurane vaporizer to altitude, you will underdose. And that's because it will deliver whatever you dial in, let's say 6%, it will deliver 6% of whatever the pressure is. So if you are at 360 tor instead of 760 tor, it will deliver six percent of that, and that will be an underdose. All right, what do, do you see from a rapid increase in the dose of desflurane that you don't necessarily see with other inhaled anesthetics when they are increased rapidly? You see hypertension and tachycardia. Which opioid has the shortest context sensitive half time, and why? So the answer is remifentanil, and it is because it's broken down by nonspecific tissue esterases that are throughout the entire body in all the tissues, and so that means it's broken down very, very rapidly. No matter how much accumulates, it will never build up because of the fact that it's broken down so widely throughout the body, and so it has the shortest context-sensitive halftime. Just a quick review. Context-sensitive halftime is the phenomenon that when you run an infusion of an agent, it will, over time, its half time, once you stop that infusion, will increase. So in other words, when you let's say you run an opioid like morphine and you run a morphine infusion for 10 minutes, then you turn it off. It's going to have a half-life, meaning that in a, in a certain amount of time, half of that concentration in the blood will go away. Let's just say, and I'm not, this may not be exactly right, but let's say that, to make the math easy, that you turn off opioid X after an infusion of 10 minutes, and 10 minutes later, it now, half of that uh, has gone away from the plasma concentration. But let's say you run that same opioid X for three hours and you turn it off. Your plasma concentration will now take longer to decrease by half because the context-sensitive half-time has increased. So by virtue of having run that infusion for a while, it now takes longer to decrease your plasma concentration by half. And the easy way to think about that is that you've distributed that opioid throughout the tissues, and it's going to then come back into the bloodstream, and so it'll take a while for that bloodstream concentration to decrease by half. However, with remifentanil— because it's broken down in the tissues, it doesn't build up there and build up a depot that can then dump back into the plasma. And that's why the half time of remifentanil is the same, no matter whether you've been running it for 10 minutes or for 10 hours. So that's the really nice thing about remifentanil. I will just say, remember that if you run a really high dose of remifentanil, it still may take several half-lives before the patient is able to wake up and breathe, not because the context-sensitive half time is long, but because if you have a high concentration, it's going to take more than one half-life. It's going to take several. And even if the half-life is only a few minutes, it could take 15, 20 minutes until you go through enough half-lives that the patient is ready to wake up. So it doesn't mean you can run Remy at any dose you want and get an instant wake-up. It just means that your half-time doesn't change based on the infusion length. All right. Which... IV induction agent is known for its hemodynamic stability. So the answer here is etomidate, though you might say ketamine. Key to remember about ketamine is that while usually we do think of it as hemodynamically stable, the reason it is is that its cardiac depressant effect is balanced out by the fact that it causes a release of catechols. If there are no catechols to release, then you will end up with the predominant effect of the cardiac depression, and you can get hypotension. So Atomidate doesn't suffer from that. It's a very hemodynamically stable agent. However, what should be your primary concern in Atomidate use? That would be adrenal suppression. So it does cause adrenal suppression in one dose. While it is measurable, probably not very clinically significant, but still need to know it still there. What induction agent does not cause respiratory depression? Answer to that is going to be ketamine. It can at really high doses cause some apnea, but usually not. Ketamine tends to be very good at protecting a patient's ability to breathe spontaneously, and that's a nice thing about it. How do you reverse opioids? So there are two major reversal agents, the most common being naloxone, which is the IV agent. And then, of course, there is naltrexone, which is the PO agent. There are also some partial partial antagonists, but we're not going to get into those. So what you want to know is, for the most part, naloxone. That big dose, if you're trying to reverse someone who's uh, come into the ED and overdosed on heroin and they're completely um, apneic, is a full vial, which is 400 micrograms. If you're giving it at the end of an anesthetic for somebody who is just not waking up quite as fast as you want, you would want to start much smaller. So usually we would give 20 or 40 micrograms at a time for that. How do you reverse benzodiazepines? That you do with flumazenil. However, you want to be very careful with flumazenil if you're giving them to someone who uses benzos chronically uh, because you can cause seizures by giving that. So you want to be very cautious with flumazenil uh, when you're using it. How are muscle relaxants classified? So a couple of things. We classify them into depolarizing and non-depolarizing. The only clinically active depolarizing agent is succinylcholine. Non-depolarizing agents are divided into aminosteroids. Those are rocuronium, vecuronium, and that class. And then tetrahydroisoquinoline derivatives. That's your atricurium and cis all right. What is unique about cis atricurium? It's broken down primarily by Hoffman elimination, which basically means it falls apart on its own. That's partly temperature dependent, and it does take time. Common misconception is that cis atricurium does not need to be reversed. It still needs to be reversed. Just because it falls apart on its own doesn't mean that you don't need to reverse it. That's really important to know. What are some adverse effects of succinylcholine to keep in mind? So probably the thing we think about the most is hyperkalemia, especially in patients who may have some denervated muscles. So patients with a stroke, even patients who have been extensively bedbound, definitely patients with myotonic dystrophy or other muscular uh, dystrophies or disorders. Anytime you have anything affecting the neuromuscular junction or the innervation of muscles, definitely, definitely stay away from succinylcholine unless you know that in that specific instance it's safe. It will cause a transient rise in potassium, even in patients without any of those things. So you wouldn't want to use it in someone who already is significantly hyperkalemic, even if they're not at risk for that super hyperkalemia from the muscle denervation. It can cause elevated intraocular pressure, elevated intracranial pressure, and of course, it's a trigger for malignant hyperthermia. All right, how do you reverse neuromuscular blockade? So, the classic is neostigmine and glycopyrrolate. Of course, the neostigmine is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, which floods the end plate with more acetylcholine to outcompete the neuromuscular blocker, assuming that you're using a non depolarizing neuromuscular blocker. But you don't want that acetylcholine action at places like the heart because it would cause significant bradycardia. And so, you need to balance it out with an anti muscarinic. Again, that won't affect the nicotinic receptors where you're trying to reverse the neuromuscular blockade, but it will prevent things like bradycardia. And that we most commonly use with neostigmine is glycopyrrolate. You can also use atropine and edrophonium together. In fact, there is a uh, product out there that already has those combined. And then, of course, the newer agent, at least in the United States, uh, relatively new in the United States, is Sugamidex. So with Sugamidex, dosing is interesting. You, If you have at least two twitches on your train of four monitor, you can give two milligrams per kilogram. If you have one or le- or zero twitches, then you need to do, well, if you have one twitch, you can give four mi- milligrams per kilogram. If you have no twitches on your regular train of four, then you need to do post-titanic twitches. It's commonly uh, misunderstood. So you're going to give a 50 Hertz tetanus for five seconds. Then you're going to wait three seconds And then you are going to do one twitch every second and and count how many you get. If you get at least two post-tetanic twitches or anywhere up to however many you get, then you can still give the four milligram per kilogram dose of Sugamidex. If you don't have two post-tetanic twitches, then you need to either wait till you do or give the big dose 16 milligrams per kilogram of Sugamidex. Side effects of sugaminex you want to think about are potential anaphylactic reactions and severe bradycardia. Those are the big ones, of course, also for women who are of childbearing age. They can interfere with the contraceptive pills they may be taking. All right, what are the criteria to keep in mind for extubation? So, this is something that comes up on oral boards, for example, all the time. So, you want to have something kind of in your head that you spit out. Now, this varies a lot. There's not an absolute right answer. Different people have different criteria, but something like this is going to serve you well. You want a patient to be awake, following commands, demonstrating that they have fully recovered strength, and not just things like a head lift, which actually aren't that sensitive, but that you've tested their train of four with a qualitative monitor or that you have fully reversed them and that they have now demonstrated that they have greater than 0.9 recovery on their train of four, a negative inspiratory force of at least negative 25, a tidal volume of at least 5 mLs per kilo, a vital capacity of at least 10 mLs per kilo, The rapid shallow breathing index, which is respiratory rate over tidal volume of less than 105, the lower there, the better. So the way to think about that is a lower respiratory rate with a higher tidal volume. Those are good things. That shows that you are, for the most part, breathing well and comfortably acid-base status, you want to be relatively normal. You don't want someone horribly acidotic who probably has got something else going on. You want bleeding under control so that you're not immediately going to have to go back to the operating room due to bleeding. You want to make sure there's no reason to suspect airway swelling. So if it was a case that was done on the larynx, for example, then you want to think harder about whether it's going to be safe to take that breathing tube out. Things like a leak test haven't been shown to be that helpful, but in those scenarios, you might want to think about it. And then, of course, The patient has to be able to adequately oxygenate and ventilate, oxygenate on relatively low uh, concentrations of oxygen. Normally, we think of about 40% or less, and then ventilate, meaning maintain their CO2 at a reasonable level with minimal support, which we usually think about as pressure support of five or less. All right. We talked about this rapid shallow breathing index. That's also, you may hear it known as the Tobin index. Again, that's respiratory rate over tidal volume. All right. All right. Last couple here. What is the best sedative for ICU use? This might be a little bit of a trick question because if they give you the answer to kind of avoid sedation whenever possible, in other words, none, that might be the right answer. But... If they give you the choice of different sedatives uh, and none is not a choice, then dexmedetomidine is probably going to be your answer. It is definitely associated with the least delirium in the ICU, maybe even can be preventative of delirium, which is pretty neat, and we'll see more about that. Also has maybe some potential in alcohol withdrawal to attenuate the effects, but you should not rely on that completely. You still need to use other agents like benzodiazepines in alcohol withdrawal. All right, last question. Lung protective ventilation. What is the ideal uh, tidal volume? So for ARDS, definitely 6 mLs per kilo of predicted body weight. What is predicted body weight? It is based only on gender and height. Gender and height only. I don't think you'll have to memorize the formula specifically for exams, but you will need to know that it's related to gender and height. And so if they give you some formulas that include things like the patient's weight that is not part of it it's just gender and height all right for intra-op use when we're not dealing with someone with ards six mls per kilo probably still the way to go but certainly you could argue that increasing it a little bit somewhere between six and eight is probably still relatively well protected and remember though that's got to be of predicted body weight all right that is it lightning round one done let us know what you thought Of course, as I was doing that and reading them quickly and thinking about them quickly, maybe I made a mistake if so. Please let me know. Correct me. Go to the comments. What did I do wrong so that everyone can learn? Also, if you have others, as I said, send them in. Email me, akrak at akrak.com. Send them in, and uh, I'll put another lightning round two episode together at some point in the future uh, and include your factoids if you've got some good ones. Send them to me. All right. If you are a fan of the show please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash acrac. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash a-c-c-r-a-c, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. We really appreciate it. Of course, you can also make a donation anytime you want by going to paypal.me slash acrac. That's paypal.me slash a-c-c-r-a-c. Huge thank you to everyone who is already a patron or already made donations. We really appreciate it. And of course, our music is by Dennis Quo. It's original music produced for Acrac. Dennis is amazing. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. Thanks as always to Brian Park for the outlines he makes for some of the episodes, and thank you all for listening. For the Acrac podcast, I'm Jim Wolpa. Remember what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.